You're listening to The Sister Trill with Danai and Kiveli. Hi everybody and welcome back to The Sister Trill. I'm Kiveli. And I'm Danai. And we're coming to you from our mutual home in Berlin. Today's episode is an immediate continuation from the last one. It's our musical journey part two. But before we directly dive back into it, let's first start with our usual segment, what we disagreed on this week. Okay, so I'll go first. Okay. Um, my, my thing is actually quite a little thing. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. This week we're planning a kind of big party, our first big party in this house. And it's not just a party. It's more like a party weekend with several events planned. So it's going to be very big. And we were talking about the breakfast situation because we have several people that will be staying at our house. And we were talking and we had a kind of a typical disagreement, I would say, between us, Kiveli was very much on the side of going all out and being an incredible host and putting out a buffet and she was thinking everything, salmon, everything needs to be out. And I was like, yeah, let's just take it easy. Let's have a little bit of bread and let's see. And I was just kind of playing it chill. So it wasn't really a big disagreement. We were just kind of discussing it and of course we will find a compromise and actually exactly along the same lines also in for the party evening because we're starting early enough for it to be sensible to have like dinner options there I was like more on the side of yeah let's prepare like many different snacks and many different options and Danai was more on the side of yeah why don't we just write to everyone that everyone brings something like of their own and I was you know I always think like if I'm a party guest I like this this added responsibility of hey bring something Mm. like always kind of uh you know, I, I much prefer the style yeah. of like you go and you just have the experience. So, um, so basically, yeah. what we take from that is Kiveli's the better host. Well, the two of us. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how the party goes. <laughs> okay. So, um, last week we stopped right when our first teacher, Karlheinz Kemmerling, had died. I was uh, 17 years old and you were 21 years old, yeah. almost. And um, and then we both changed to one of Karlheinz Kemmerling's students, and I think up to then he had definitely been one of our musical idols just pianist wise we had played once in his incredible chamber music festival I think a turning point for us both in the way we approached the music world um, it's Last Forked and um, first yeah why don't you tell me a bit how you felt about that change first of all like that moment I mean it was a huge shift and then like kind of the differences in teaching and in what you learned yeah uh, well I mean the death of Karlheinz Kemmerling of course was a very difficult moment, I think, mm. in both our lives. Um, what did you do? Like, how did you, you know, like, what was your first reaction? Well, I mean, for me in particular, because mm-hmm. as you know, I was like with him in the final months and kind of like taking care of him and visiting him. So I was very close to him, especially in the end on a personal level. And when he passed away, it was one of the days that um, I was visiting him because I was visiting almost every day. Mm. And he had said, come at three or something like this. And I remember that um, I had come, I don't know, like 10 minutes later, maybe like 10 past three or something like that, for whichever reason. And I arrived and the nurse at that home said, yeah, he just passed away, like just three minutes ago or something like this. Mm. Um, but I mean, I, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't really feel bad, like, oh, I wasn't there. But 
it was kind of to be expected. Mm-hmm. It, it was yeah. kind of obvious he had spent the last day already being very calm and everyone said, yes, it's, it is his time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a, a very nice end. In the end, he had met some very crucial people again. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very nice. But for me, I just remember going into that room and seeing his, literally his dead body there. And I don't think I had ever seen mm-hmm. a dead body up to that point consciously well actually it's not true I our saw grandma. our grandmother yeah, yeah at her grandma. funeral it was an open casket yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah but being there in that room alone and yeah. the nurse said okay I'll leave you alone for a minute and I was just with mm-hmm. that body it was very strange mm-hmm. to me and I remember she she closed the door and I just started crying okay I started crying and I was I just saw him and I don't know I just felt like I didn't want to let go just yet. Mm. I felt like, oh, please stay and teach me more things. Um, But yeah, this was just the very first moment. Then I went back home and you were there also. I wasn't in Hanover. You called me. Ah, but then you came. I came the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I remember we were talking and we met up the entire class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was like one, two days later. Yeah, yeah. But, But this is kind of when I felt that it was starting to sink in and... And once it had like really fully entered my mind, the next thought was, okay, so who's going to be my next teacher? Mm. So once I really accepted, okay, he's gone, it's like, who am I going to learn from now? Mm. So this was kind of the moment where I think uh, all of us were unsure because he had a very big class. Also, Mm -hmm. we were, I think, 30, 40 people. Something like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, he not, not just did he have a big class, but his class was his family. Yeah. So he had invested yeah. everything he had in these people. We were also like a family within the class. Yeah. And and it, it's true. We were like a big family. And actually, after he passed away, we never were like a family again. like that ever yeah. again. Because, of course, we all kind of went to different teachers. Mm. And although we are still friends, and if we met up today, of course, we yes. would all be very uh, happy to spend time with each yeah. other. But this feeling of we are one group... Mm-hmm with one common cause that went away Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. him. But um, yeah, I remember then when this option came up with Lars and um, I started talking to him. And at that point, when Kemaling passed away, Lars hadn't even decided to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. But Kemaling had asked him. That's what I find so moving. Like Kemaling kind of... Yeah, yeah. He had asked him, but but Lars didn't know yet for sure if he was going to do it um, and where and Mm -hmm. which university. Um, But of course, it was in a way the perfect... Mm-hmm. continuation I find I, I mm. think there couldn't have been a better continuation going from this extremely uh, wise uh, old teacher Kemaling to someone who was a student and who was at the height of his performance career as a pianist mm-hmm. with so much experience on stage yeah, 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 and, of course, of and course. really musically going into the same direction though. yeah 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 I remember I mean for me I, I remember this whole time very vividly I was always kind of envious of the time that you had with him in the end mm. with Kemali because I still went to school during the time so I didn't live in Hanover yet so I, I only saw him sometimes on the weekend and I did see him a couple of, obviously, like in, in, in the last, I think I saw him one week before he yeah. died was the last time I saw him. And I, I also remember, I mean, these things are obviously so much clearer in retrospect than they are in the moment. But that last time I saw him was incredible. I mean, f- first of all, like he gave me a lesson 
through like listening to a recording together of a piece that I was playing at mm. the time. And he also uh, developed in that time with me like my next recital program. And, you know, he was said he was using, you know, all this terminology that I had at that point, you know, musically grown up with. And I remember I washed his hair. Like he asked me to, if I could help him wash his, you know, at the, mm -hmm. he was so weak at the time, like yeah. physically weak. Yeah, he couldn't do anything. And, you know, he like, there was this bucket of water and, you know, so I mean, it, it was... I remember like at that time it was like it was this crisscross between still this incredible piano professor and just like like a family member mm. you know and then I remember that when I went out of the door like to to leave to take the train back back home I remember I looked back and I was almost like some it, a part of me felt like it was going to be the last time I'd see him mm -hmm. I remember I always looked back and I was like It's a good moment. It's a good moment for it to be the last moment. It was like it was felt like a goodbye. It felt like a, a goodbye. It, yeah. like, I remember I felt kind because of, I was supposed to come the next week again, but then he died he a couple of died, days yeah. later, and and the next yeah. week. So and, and, and I didn't say like good, like but it, it kind of felt like an like an end in a way. Yeah. And then I remember that. Um, When you called me, that's the, the other thing, again, these things, as I said, feel much more pivotal and, you know, um, feel clear in retrospect. But I was practicing the slow movement of the first Scriabin Sonata, mm -hmm. a piece that he had just told me to, like, start learning. Mm -hmm. and, it's like, and it was like this very, you know, and, and I, was, I was sight reading it. So it wasn't like I was practicing, I was like kind of learning it for the first time when everything feels, you know, like every harmonic change, you feel it in your heart because it's the first time you're mm -hmm. hearing it kind of. And I remember. I was like, wow. And I kind of, while I was practicing it, while I was playing it, I was kind of getting really, really sad and sadder and sadder. And I, and I was alone in the house. Like our mom had gone, I don't know, buy, mm -hmm. buy stuff or something. Like I was alone. And then I remember you called me and you said, hey, Kiveli, you know, um, we all know this moment was coming and um, Kemaling died today. And, and we, we did all know that he was, that that moment was coming. Yeah. And I was like, Okay, you know, thank you for telling me. I remember I hung up and then I like immediately left the house. I I didn't cry. I like kind of, you know, like was breathless for about 10 seconds. I was like, you know, like I couldn't believe it. Mm. And then like I kind of got super calm and I called a very good friend of mine who, you know, had kind of been with me through the time anyway. Yeah. And um and 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 I remember I went to his place and you know, we kind of took my mind off things and And, and, and it took a very long time for me to understand the true consequence mm. of that. Like to this day, sometimes, you know, I still think, what if, you know, he would have lived 10 years longer, he was still you know, here. what yeah. if I could play this piece for him? Yeah. And, um, and then what I remember in terms of like changing teacher that for me, it wasn't as clear cut as for you that you directly went mm -hmm. to study with Lars. For me, it was not that like, because I was so, I would say lost. I didn't really take a lot of initiative immediately. So I kind of didn't really make any conscious steps for about one, two months. And what happened was that there was like also another teacher in the mix that mm. it, that I kind of played for. And I remember this contrast. I had gone to this other teacher to do like a, a lesson with him. And then the next day I did a lesson with Lars. And I, mem I remember when I did this lesson with Lars, I mean, at that point during the last months of, of, of Kemaling's sickness, we didn't really have lessons with him, obviously, mm. like not at a piano, right? Yeah. Because he was already in the hospital. So I remember that when I played and last was using all these words that I knew and, and like this whole mentality around music making, like also this whole humility in front of the music and the composers. And I remember 
it was like I, I felt at home, mm, you know. Yeah. It was this feeling of okay, this is where I belong. Yeah. So yeah, I, I totally understand. This was like my yeah. in, like my first concert because also Kemaling was one of these like you know old school incredible professors, but that also had like a huge ego in terms of you were not really allowed to have lessons with anyone yeah. else. So at that point, you know, I was seventeen and I'd never had a lesson with anyone else apart from Kemaling and my music school teacher when I was like four to seven years old. So it was kind of also one of the first teachers with someone else anyway, and you know to immediately feel this. Connection connection of wow you know like the the way he approaches music mm-hmm. is the way I one day wish to approach yeah. music is very special yeah so um and I think Lars also has this thing inside of him that music is the highest of all goods yeah. in life because I really think this is what Kemaling tried to instill in all of us yeah. he used to say this thing that music is an oasis an oasis mm-hmm. of happiness and of bliss in this terrible world you yeah, know yeah, yeah. no matter what happens politically or whatever violence wars Music is untouchable. Pollution, music cannot be polluted. Exactly. It's yes. untouchable. And yeah. I think in a way he did instill that in us. Yeah. And it's also absolutely how he lived his life. And when talking about these last weeks, and as you already said, he was very weak in the end. He was in a state where he couldn't even eat anymore and all, all these things. And when he listened to music, he was always turning into a different yeah. person. Yeah. I've never witnessed something like that because, I mean, I've also never really been with someone who was dying yeah. so intensely, but it was incredible. You would talk to him, you would ask him things, he wouldn't even respond. And then you would put a CD into the CD recording or someone would play for him over the phone and I would hold it to his ear and he would be like back awake mm. and somehow awoken back to life. It was mm. incredible. He was starting to conduct and give a lesson, basically. Yeah. Whatever yeah. he was listening, he was always giving a lesson. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, yeah. oh, no, yeah. no, this phrase, and yeah. no, yeah. correct that, and no, tell him it, this needs to be piano. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, whoa. The space between the movements okay. is too long. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he really lived for the music. Yeah. And I think Lars also lives Yes. For the music. Yeah. And I, it was important for us to have a teacher who really had that inside of yes. him and wasn't just, yes, I'm a professional teacher, I have a lot of knowledge, but yeah. music yeah. really as, yeah. you know, a lifestyle yeah. in yeah. a way. You know, I was actually, because uh, when I was practicing Opus 111 by, by Beethoven, which is like a big piece for us pianists, I was practicing it off of Kemaling's old edition. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, I have like, you know, because Lars actually, <laughs> who now owns all of Kemaling's old... Uh, scores and gave it to me like scanned it for me mm-hmm. and I I worked it both off of his like kind of teacher's edition where like it's all the you know like things he usually would say students but also off of his edition I don't know if you've ever seen that edition of his Beethoven sonatas where it's just his thoughts where he kind of analyzes yeah. the piece and it's like yeah. those small kind of phrases this is like you know this is like the whole movement is working towards this note mm-hmm. and like, like this is the epilogue this is a prologue and I was just like astounded I remember there was also this one master class we would do with him in Italy where you know there was one practice room right next to his bedroom apart from the fact that this was the practice room no one dared to practice in (laughs) because like they knew that Kemaling was hearing everything you could also always hear that he was in his spare time which was basically in existence he was always teaching one hour a day he was listening and analyzing music he was just music through all yeah 
It was amazing. So yeah, and um, for me, I remember what struck me so much when I started learning from Lars is um, obviously Kemaling was very aware of like the performing and like the, I would say, challenges that goes into performing in, in an analytical and a way that we spoke about it also in the last episode, much more mm. intensely, just how well he could relate despite not actually being a performer himself. Now, Lass is the ultimate performer. I mean, that's what he, you know, that is his thing. He's a perform. he's much more a pianist, especially at that point than he was a teacher, you know? Yeah. And the, the, his whole perspective on performing to me was so eye-opening. And I found it because when I started studying with Lass in terms of like, you know, the stage fright phase, I was definitely already, you know, I'd already lived with it for a couple of years. I was at a much different point. It didn't feel completely crippling, but it still was an issue. It Mm -hmm. still was, you know, Mm -hmm. a thing that I was battling. And I remember the fact that Lass was so open about the fact that performing, of course, is always a risk. Mm. That he himself, you know, despite being on stage his entire life, still has nights where he feels like, you know, it's a huge challenge, you know. And and the fact that he, someone that, you know, I admired, I remember we heard him for the first time in concert when I was like eight and you were 12, that was so open about the fact like the goal is not to never be nervous. The goal is to, you know, deal with it in a way that ends up being beneficial for the music. And even if sometimes it's not beneficial this happens as well yeah. you know and I also found with last not just the stage fright thing because for me I was kind of I would say over yeah, this yeah, crippling yeah. phase I, I was at a level where I really had learned yeah. to deal with it finally yeah. seven years later <laughs> um, but for me uh, I remember doing my first piano concerto with him mm, in the lesson it was, it was very early on and of course as with probably almost any piano concerto he had played it already a hundred times yeah. in concert and yeah the things he told me were the most helpful things I have ever heard. Absolutely. I mean, he was yeah. like, okay, the orchestra comes in there. It's so important that you give the conductor a sign there so that you come together. Or here, the orchestra needs some more time, so definitely don't rush. You know, things that you just learn yeah, with experience. Perform, yeah. And mm-hmm. I went to that first rehearsal of a, for me, new piano concerto, playing it first yeah. time with orchestra, yeah. equipped with knowledge of someone that had and the conductors <laughs> 50 times. And the conductor's like, wow, you really anticipate stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, I have some secret tips up. <laughs> My you know, I, I mean, I have to say, like, I, I, I think like piano concerto might might be like his best, his best yes. area. And I, I mean, he's good in, in all of the different types. But piano, it's amazing. Like even piano concertos he hasn't played. I remember I went to him once with. Um, Frank Variation Symphonique, a piece he hasn't played, it's with orchestra. And it's just like also not just like the actual practical tips of like this place, the orchestra rushes, also like general, I would say, guidelines of playing mm. with the orchestra. I remember one thing he told me that t- to this day remains like one of the most valuable orchestra tips that he's ever given me, which is when you kind of have a place where you end a phrase and the orchestra starts on a tutti, don't try to start to, to end in the beginning of the orchestra sound, but try to end in the middle of the orchestra mm-hmm. sound. And it like the, the first note of the orchestra, and it makes all the difference. In the one situation, you're almost always too always early. early yeah. In the other situation, it's like you know the orchestra just takes over exactly the moment yeah. where you're like at the height of your intensity. Which I mean, is it's the same thing as like with a slow movement, you know, the one last placed note, like pianissimo, also where you have to come like after you already hear the sound of the orchestra and still a little bit later yeah, 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 yeah. to yeah. be together. Yeah. Or another thing is, I remember like when when there are tempo shifts within a movement, he always makes sure it's never like you know I sort of play a bit quicker you know but it's always very clear like you know mm-hmm. triplets become uh 
quavers or something like yeah. that you know like yeah. so the, the, and, and I remember this one time that I was uh, I was playing this piece and the conductor was like what are you doing and I was like well triplets become quavers she was like okay thank you and it yeah. went perfect I'm like okay <laughs> I just seemed very you know like yeah. per, like very well prepared and I was like thank you Lars <laughs> you know thank you very yeah. much <laughs> so um, yeah I mean all, all, all these tips that come from like years of being on stage and yeah. years of developing tips and tricks I mean are incredibly valuable the other thing that I remember, that there are like two just like simply areas of piano playing that I remember I found it also so fascinating, especially with glasses, because Kemaling always was like very focused on sound, on mm -hmm. like the sound production. But I feel like Kemaling was always very um, focused on clarity of sound and especially clarity of sound of the upper voice. He was very upper voice oriented and sometimes bass oriented. And what I always found so interesting with Lars is the way he approached, you know, like the whole bandwidth of sound, mm -hmm. also the middle voices. I remember so many times when they're like chords that could have like a more darker uh, timbre like a darker color instead of playing it more quiet or he just said well just shift the focus from the upper sound from the upper note yeah. to the lower voice and it's automatically going to become darker you know like his approach to sound is just incredible I mean the way he just produces it like and also the like security with which he produces especially like quiet sounds yeah I think is the astounding sheer, like, physical you know, yeah, yeah, like uh, control. Yeah, he's so reliable. Yeah. You know, he sits at the piano and something's like, yeah, let me try this. Yeah. And it's like this triple P, 10 voice yeah. chord yeah, yeah, that yeah, comes yeah. like all equal. And it's like, yes. oh, nice try. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, the, the, the amount of times, you know, sometimes you know, we, we work on, on a grand piano that I find, you know, has a very unforgiving, mm -hmm. bright, kind of shrill sound. And I'm like, ah, yeah, the piano, maybe I'll use una chord. And I was like... Let me try. And, yeah. then, and like, no Nakora, no anything. And just like, Pling. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, thank you very much. I should go practice. <laughs> no, no, yeah. So, and then the other thing that I found super interesting, that definitely is also an extension of Kemaling's approach. But again, it's kind of the, the approach plus like the experience of having done it so much is his approach to like pedaling. Uh -huh. Like, I feel like Kemaling had many, many different styles of pedals that involved like, you know, also like a vibrato pedaling and pedaling with you know, with like no, with certain uh, physical movements. But Lars really taught me this whole like half pedaling, a third mm -hmm. pedaling, an eighth pedaling, you know, pedaling for one hand, but not the other. Like all these things that are almost like you don't really just do them in a physical way, but you believe in them in a spiritual way for them to actually work yeah. out. You know, it's physically not impossible but it's very difficult to pedal for one hand and not for the other especially if you're trying to pedal yeah. for the right although this is something that Kemaning also talked about a lot yeah pedaling for one hand yeah, 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 not yeah. for the yeah, other yeah. but I mean it's just like this whole approach to like you know pushing boundaries mm. also the pushing boundaries thing I feel like Kemaling also came from a very like competition based piano playing that he often taught I mean he had obviously he had the moments where he absolutely you know said and now you know create something special you know I remember sometimes in a lesson whenever I would dare to like I don't know do something spontaneous he was like that was a good moment you know but last I think took this to like another level of like you know really really taking risks and really mm. I remember also in our first duo lessons it was all about like you know don't breathe in together and just play super rhythmical dare to you know take your time and feel it together even if sometimes you know you're not together it's worth risking it for the mm. time that it is together yeah. Yeah, I think what plays a huge role in Lass's personality as a musician and as a teacher is that he is 
so incredibly humble. Yes. And oh, yeah. he's humble towards the music, of course, but also humble towards everything. I mean, he criticizes himself all the time. He never thinks, you know, yeah. yes, I'm the best. He went for lessons to Kemaling until yeah. he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there every year playing for him. I remember this one time in one of the master classes in Salzburg in Me the too. Summer Academy where Lars came and he said, you know, nothing is working. And Kemaling said, no performance practice lesson today. My yes. former student is here. And we were all like, ooh, you know, famous pianist. Lass, like, oh my is God, here. he's here. Nothing is working right now. <laughs> I have to teach him, you know. Yeah. And, and he taught him yeah, for like he, hours. Yeah, yeah. And and to, I spoke to Lars about that lesson yeah. later. And Lars said it was a life-changing mm. lesson. Because very often when you're on stage, this is what people don't realize, no matter how experienced you are and how many things you know, you get into certain habits. Mm. Habits creep in and you don't even notice and then it's so valuable to hear once again okay don't forget this basic thing and this yeah. basic thing yeah. things that you already know but it's just so helpful to yeah. hear them again and yeah, I think yeah. Lars is really so humble and that really shows you know in his lessons the way yeah. he teaches in his music making in the whole the whole idea and concept of music yeah. that he instilled yeah. in yeah. us and I think then the 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 last of course big thing for both of us definitely in terms of like how inspiring it was is also getting to know his whole kind of uh, friend friend group of yeah one more incredible musician than the next. I mean, and, just, yeah, seeing him work with amazing conductors and also yeah. meeting those yeah, yeah. conductors. I mean, this is so valuable. Yeah, it's absolutely. so difficult to get into that yeah. and to be introduced to all of this world and to all these yeah. people by someone like him, yeah. of course, is yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so as a next topic, I'm sure we're going to get back to like these type of things again in, in, in some questions. But the next one would be... Um, Obviously, we both then studied music. Uh, we did our bachelor's and then we went and did, uh, do our, we're doing our master's. And um, what do you think about like studying music, pros and cons? What's your perspective of mm -hmm. studying music? Um, How much did it help you? How mm -hmm. much did it, you know, not help you? <laughs> I do think it's very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that it's helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. For me, also, studying was, you know, with Kemaling was uh, attached to having piano lessons three times no, but a I, week. I, yeah, but more like, you know, not just like the lesson part of it, but like the actual other classes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I know, I know. I mean, just the piano lessons mm -hmm. were three times a week plus performance practice, which was so mm -hmm. intense and I think I practiced so so much during mm -hmm. my study time because I needed to mm -hmm. in order to keep up with all of this and the other lessons I mean yeah there's of course music theory and all of that which I think it is definitely helpful to have a basic mm -hmm. knowledge um, depending of course on what you're going to do later you know if mm -hmm. you're going to become a piano teacher or I don't know an, uh, maybe also as an accompanist like all this harmonic knowledge helps a lot but um Of course, as a performing solo pianist, actually, you don't need any other subject. Just, you know, theoretically, you only need to know how to play. That's all you need to know. However, I think it's just the same as with going to school. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking about this in our school episode. It's good to have a general knowledge. It helps you. Everything influences your playing. Mm -hmm. And I think having theoretical knowledge, having music history knowledge, mm -hmm. having opera history knowledge really helps. And mm -hmm. sometimes I do draw from that. For example, this opera history yeah, class yeah. that we had, we learned so many interesting things. I mean, I learned about composers that I had never heard yeah. before about things you know sometimes when we are programming the festival yeah, I go yeah, back yeah, to yeah. that and I was like oh yeah what did that teacher say yeah. what existed yeah, back yeah, then yeah, yeah. 
some classes I found incredibly interesting, like um, music physiology, where we had this yeah, incredible yeah, yeah. professor yes. that's actually a very advanced uh, doctor for musicians, and he's very shout advanced out to Professor Altenmüller. Exactly, shout <laughs> out to him. Um, he's very advanced in his field. Literally, musicians from all over the world come to him yeah. when they have pain or problems, and he does so many interesting things. He measures what's happening in the brain while you play and all of that. And for example, he had some incredible insights oh, about yeah, stage fright and. Yeah, yeah. all these things so generally I'm very much pro yeah. studies pro school pro studies I think any added knowledge that you get to your craft is valuable absolutely yeah I, although I would um, the one I mean I agree with you 100% on all these things the only thing that I always kept thinking that I'm just a bit ambivalent about and I don't really understand it properly is the fact that because what we studied, it wasn't even like just music. We studied music with the direction of performing. Because you can also yeah. study it with the direction of teaching yeah. or with the direction of teaching it in, in, in school, you know, like... you And we studied it in the direction of performing, mm -hmm. which means that what you are kind of being uh, prepared for is playing concerts. The more concerts, the better. Like, you know, just saying it, yeah. simplifying it, yeah. right? And yet... If you played concerts and therefore missed classes, you mm -hmm. were kind of punished for it. You know, like That's you true. weren't That's you true. weren't allowed to miss more. And 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 I always found that a bit weird because from the high school perspective, where we were like super lucky because we were in a school yeah. where we kind of had this deal that we were allowed to do that. I get it. Like if they're like, no, you know, go to your regular school, like, you know, learn your math, learn your physics. But from a music university perspective, I'm like, but that's what you guys are, are shaping us for, for us to go and play concerts. So why when we go and play concerts and miss one class of something, we then don't get the signature, you know, we then don't get the course, yeah. we don't pass the course. So that's what I always found a bit interesting you yeah know? Uh, that's true I mean I also found that contradictory but I also think that you know more most of the professors were kind of yeah but flexible I mean with it. most of the professors were flexible with it but one has to say that if push had come to shove which I mean it didn't in the end yeah that the it, it, I mean the, the professors were not at all um you know, they, they didn't have to give us that leeway. And I remember professors went, you know, certain uh, professors had different approaches to it. Some wanted you to write an essay for every hour you missed. Um, some, you know, were kind of like, okay, you know, I'm super happy yeah. that you've, you know, you're playing concerts. Others were super strict, you know, we both know there were some where you just couldn't yeah. miss it. Yeah. So uh, it's very, I don't know, that's always what I found mm. very interesting because I just didn't understand why they wouldn't be just happy about the fact yeah. that we're playing. Yeah. About, you know? I mean, I think a very valid question is also in how far do these studies actually prepare us for a career as a performing pianist? Yeah. And I would argue for that specific thing, for yeah. a career as a performing pianist, they don't really prepare us. The only thing that prepares us is Knowledge. our teacher, like, you know, with his oh, performance yeah, yeah, yeah. practice lessons and everything. But if it wasn't for him... It's not like we get, you know, so much experience in that. It's yeah. not It's not that we talk about the whole business side of things mm. or not so much. I think it's changing maybe a little mm -hmm. bit, but how to get into an agency, how to get a CD label, how to contact a promoter, you know. What to look out for when you're signing a contract. How to write, like yeah, that. a biography, a website, you know, every, yeah. all these things. I think it's need. interesting because I think that it's shifting. Like yeah. the music university have become very aware of yeah. it and are kind of trying to introduce it as well. But even with, with us, and I think we did go to a university that is, you know, very much Quite on forward the... forward Exactly, yeah. the 
forward-thinking side. It was like you had, I don't know, uh, these are like random numbers, 60 credit points for like, you know, the total, you know, music uh, teaching and everything. And then you had like two credit points for self-management. Exactly. It's not in relation to what you're actually going to need. I mean, the main thing above, uh, apart from obviously your playing, which Mm. is the main thing, should be the business side yeah. handling your career because exactly. I mean you need to be so entrepreneurial to pull yeah. off a career yeah and I mean I needed to teach these things yeah, to myself absolutely. you know I would have loved to have learned something about taxes for example you know yeah how to file everything what to collect you know your expenses yeah what counts you know these things that are very important yeah. for yeah, a absolutely. solo musician a freelance absolutely. musician yeah, yeah yeah so that that is obviously uh, but I think it's very difficult like all these you know innovative things you know I think it's also you have to have the spirit to yeah, pull it off the spirit sure. is more yeah. important than just like or is equally important to the knowledge kind of yeah but I definitely agree with that and I, and I think that the universities are shifting in that direction but I think it's going much slower than necessary like you know, there is still a big reluctance to accept the level of entrepreneurial spirit needed also when it comes to social media like yeah. they should I mean they should have an Instagram class let's be yeah. let's be honest about this you need to have a Facebook Instagram class you know to just teach this whole yeah. mentality you know which hashtags which accounts yeah. I don't know like it is these, this is all much more yeah. I would say a realistic what we deal with from our day to day life yeah. than say the opera history which is also interesting yeah. oh, for sure but you know not as I mean, it's true yeah. it, it doesn't sound so glamorous but our job is not just being inspired by yeah, music yeah, and yeah. practicing and discovering the meaning of the piece, but it's all of that, yeah, social yeah. media, all of this, yeah. organizing. Yeah. So that perfectly segues into the next aspect, which is that, because in the last episode, we spoke a lot about like more our childhood years playing the piano. And um, obviously at some point that shifted and like this whole phenomenon of a music, music career mm-hmm. Um, had to become conscious, you know, it yeah. had to become more strategic. There had to be, you know, short-term, long-term goals that went beyond, I want to be a concert pianist yeah. or I want to perform a lot, you know? Um, so I wanted to ask you, because I think there we really have had a very different, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, story or approach to it. Um, when do you remember being aware of like this whole beast of the business side mm-hmm. of music what were like your first thoughts your first steps and and yeah like yeah. how was that like, your introduction to this for you yourself I think I became fully aware of it when I entered my first agency mm-hmm. which was when I was 16 this mm-hmm. is when I signed with my first agent who was a very small agent and um I was with him. He definitely did some concerts for me. And it was the first time that I started, you know, paying commission, for example, after a concert. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, wow, I'm not keeping all of my money. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> you know, this this type of thing. Um, and then I remember being kind of unhappy with the amount of concerts that he was getting me. Mm-hmm. And this is when I started thinking about, okay, you know, what do I need to do in order to get more concerts and all these things? And... I mean, as you know, uh, four years later, I signed with a very big agency. And um, that's when, I mean, my mind was completely there because mm-hmm. this big agency, I mean, I don't, don't want to say the name now, but um, one of the main ones. And they, of course, developed a whole career strategy mm-hmm. with me. So 
this is when I started being in this world of which until then, by the way, with my small agent was unknown to me, planning repertoire two years in advance, for example. Mm -hmm. I remember when my agent wrote to me for the first time, okay, give me your recital programs for, I don't know, let's say it was uh, 2012. and, And she said, give me your recital programs for 2014. I was like, what? Because until then, you know, I had just gotten, okay, concert in three months, what am I going to play? By the way, interestingly enough, the same approach as Kemaling's approach. Yeah. We're going to plan your next recital program. Now. Exactly. Like the next pieces you're going to yeah. learn are going to be part of your next recital program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this was huge for me. And I remember in these first years, I, it was very hard for me to find this right balance between new pieces, old pieces, because then you also get replacement gigs and, you know, all of mm-hmm. this to really understand what can I do. And then also this agent was talking to me a lot about, you know, um, what goes into a good program, how to form an interesting program. Mm-hmm. Don't just play whatever, because mm-hmm. I remember the first program I gave her was like, a let's start with Bach, then a sonata, then a romantic piece. Piece, and then in the end, a modern piece, you know, this like, whatever, very childish competition style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, look, um, this is not such an interesting recital program. And then she kind of told me, let's think about yeah. creative ideas. And yeah. this is when this whole thought process yeah. entered my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I think from then on is when I was really fully into the career mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, talking when we were talking about which orchestras to uh, contact, which conductor to mm-hmm. play for and all of that. Yeah. I remember that my journey was in so far a bit different is, I think it also has to do with our personalities. Because I think that um, you're much more, you know, conscientiously ambitious. I think we're both ambitious, but I'm ambitious, like, you know, in a more, I would say, uh, like in a less practical way, you know, mm-hmm. like you're more ambitious, like, okay, I'm going to write these four um, agencies or these four uh, organizers, then I'm going to do this and this and this and that. And I'm like more, you know, I have this energy of ambition, but I'm also much more like a face-to-face type of person. Mm-hmm. And I remember that my big issue for a long time I remember it started when I was about 15 16 and it probably ended when I was about 19 was that I had like an emotional barrier towards viewing this artistic endeavor that I loved and it was for me all about you know connecting with Mm. people it was all about the thing you know like this ideal this utopia kind of of, of like (laughs) yeah exactly of connecting that to like the much more cold-hearted strategic impersonal business side like you know kind of having to I remember in, in, in that point I kind of felt like you know this is not something that you know it should be so valuable by itself you shouldn't have to fight mm. you know to to be able to share something yeah. um, that is so valuable to all people involved you know that's I remember I was thinking not, not in terms of like me being so valuable music yeah, being yeah, so valuable you know yeah, yeah. so um I remember for some years I almost looked down on your kind of the mm. fact that you were like okay now this concert this concert I'm like aren't you doing it because you love it why are you doing it to play this in this concert and 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 it was you know and it's kind of interesting because now years later I'm there is this one psychologist that I absolutely look up to and I find so interesting um, his name is Jordan Peterson and he talks about the very difficult thing for artistic people like for very creative and open-minded people and that they have like two main difficulties and I just identify exactly with both of them and <laughs> um, 
One is the one that I was just talking about. They have a very difficult time monetizing their creativity, which, I mean, now at this point, I've accepted that it's needed. But like I would say about five years ago, it was definitely a thing for me, like this kind of accepting the you have to monetize it and that therefore you have to, you know, be like take part in that mm -hmm. game, the business side of it. And then the other difficulty is um, they, they also have a hard time catalyzing an, um, an identity, because they're interested in so many things. And there was the other thing like, you know, it was m many, many times when you like confront people in the business side of the music industry, they all talk to you about, you know, like you have to have a very clear image, you know, you have to have something that is, you know, you can sell, something that's easily communicated, something that is who you are. And I thought like, I, I, I'm so many things, I'm interested in so many things, you know? and. It took me a while to kind of, between all my interests, find like kind of, okay, what is what is it that makes me, me mm. in a way, you mm -hmm. know? And where is it that I can add, like I can find the most fulfillment? Yeah. So, um, and I would say, I think that that is something that I don't believe I'm alone, that I struggled with it, like from the artistic perspective, kind of many artists that are such amazing artists but just never uh, accepted the jump from being just an artist to being an artist and a business person yeah and which I think maybe 30 40 years ago or maybe even 20 years ago was an option mm -hmm. and was totally possible you could be this artist only mm -hmm. with a very strange crazy personality and someone else your mm -hmm. agent did everything for you nowadays it is just Absolutely. Impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely needed in the age of social media and this direct contact that you have to your audience. This, to put it in a kind of bad sounding way, kind of autistic artist is mm -hmm. not what people uh, are looking for anymore. Yeah. They're looking for an all rounded personality, a, a, a package that they can sell, that they can look up to, that they can yeah. identify yeah. with. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but, but I also started, I remember that when I started, um, cause the other thing that, again, going back to it, like the other thing that I was just so, I would say like almost uninterested in is this whole side of, um, how much money do you get for each concert? Mm. You know, like, cause obviously when you start playing the piano super young and I mean, what were like our first fees were like 350 euros <laughs> we were like, I don't know, uh, eight and 12, you know, or, and then the next, you know, and, 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 and then at some point it gets a bit higher and a bit higher. And, and I remember like, I, obviously like I was, uh, grateful and I was like oh cool you know I'm getting a higher fee right now but it never was like a goal to get like higher fees yeah. or anything like that I could never and you know many music organizers also talk about that like for example don't pay, play certain concerts without your like uh, I would say minimum standard standard yeah. fee and things like that but I do remember that when I started getting I mean you know like noticeably higher fees that I started thinking to myself like okay, wow, this is like a whole world in itself. And um, so, yeah, for me, it was kind of a, I would say I had a lot of resistance in the beginning, but now that I kind of have, I, I understand that you just have to, you know, embrace it. I also find it a very exciting part of it, I have to yeah. say. Like this whole world of networking and connecting, because the way I see it now is like, because you have so much more control, over your own career in a way compared to like, you know, the model of the amazing uh, autistic musician with an amazing mm -hmm. agent mm -hmm. behind him kind of mm -hmm. thing is you are, you know, you can really also, I would say, um, 
collaborate with other interesting people. You know, you can create these very interesting ideas and projects. And now I approach it more from a, from the side of also like, you know, when you approach um, organizers and things like mm. that of like actually have this exciting idea. And if you believe in the idea enough, that's the, the if you believe in the idea in, in what you have to offer enough, then I think it's not embarrassing or uncomfortable to approach other people. I've noticed it now, like now that I've come up with some ideas that I really believe yeah. in, that I find it much less stressful to be like, hey, I think this could be really cool. Yeah, Are you up for, for sure. programming yeah. that? You know, if you're just kind of like, can you please give me a concert? You know, because that's how I, I approached it in the beginning. Like, mm. you know, please give me a concert. I promise I'm a really good pianist. Yeah. You know, like yeah, this yeah. kind of, ah. But the, the truth is you need to be like, no, I actually have this amazing idea. Yeah. Which is, you know, the idea may, might just be an incredible program, but, you know, yeah. and I believe in it yeah. and I, I would love to share it with you. Yeah, that's like sure. the, the approach. Yeah. Which I'm actually, like, I probably maybe that's what you wanted to say anyway, but what would you say are you particularly good at in the business side of things? And what you, would you say, like, you're more uncomfortable with still or, you know, you still want to work on? Hmm, interesting. I mean, the thing is that I have to honestly say that I had never really had to handle the business side of things in terms mm -hmm. of negotiating fees yeah, yeah. Okay. and all of that, because I always, you know, had an agent, which I must say, you know, basically every musician complains about his agent and, you know, there are many things you can be unhappy with, but in the end, I'm incredibly grateful mm -hmm. that I always had an agent because it is a fact that, you know, agents can ask of for course. more money of course. and, Yes, you pay the commission, but my fees, whenever I was with an agent... Um, always also, higher, same. Were always higher. Of course. Always, always higher. And um, I remember when I changed to that agency I was talking about before, my fees got significantly higher almost mm -hmm. instantly. And I was like, wow, okay, you mm -hmm. know, this is just the standing that an mm -hmm. agent has that an artist doesn't. Probably and could. It's just like we are not particularly pushy negotiators. That's true, but I do know from promoters that they will always give more money to an agent than an artist okay. because the agent just has different kind of leverage. The agent is the gateway to many artists, maybe mm -hmm. also to one key very famous artist yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. the agent no, has I, on of their course, roster. Of course. So. But I mean, I, I, I always, I mean, I always wonder a bit because, you know, there are different styles of negotiating and I think you and I are both kind of, you know, yeah, we're milder, so yeah, milder yeah, hearts, yeah. we're not particularly pushy. Um, so I, I always wonder, you know, like no, you're what absolutely would right. I'm sure that there are some pushy musicians out there that get incredible results. Yeah, but I do think that the best result will be from a pushy agent. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, no, but generally, what I think I'm best at on the business side, um, I think is actually, um, I would say, kind of, you know, going with the time and creating my own thing. I'm thinking now particularly, for example, about my YouTube channel where I started this whole uh -huh. piano tutorial thing, something that is not so common, you know, mm -hmm. with other pianists and something that kind of sets me apart and that, you know, gives a whole different um, profile to my whole mm -hmm. persona because... Yes, of course, I'm a pianist and people can hear me in concert and there are videos of me playing and mm -hmm. all of that. You can buy my CD. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. But um, this is a bit of a different approach, mm -hmm. explaining how I get there, mm -hmm. how I build my technique. And um, I'm noticing that, you know, everyone is almost everyone is asking me about it. You know, uh, journalists, mm -hmm. uh, promoters, everyone's like, oh, wow. And I saw this. How interesting. And mm -hmm. I think this is um, so I, I don't mean, you know, the YouTube channel in itself, but I just mean the fact that I like to come up with different approaches. And you're willing to, to put a lot of energy. Exactly. And, and I'm mm -hmm. willing to put a lot of energy um, without expecting any 
you know, financial success or immediate yeah. result. Yeah, 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 it's just yeah. because I like to actually be creative and mm -hmm. create new things in the field of music. Mm -hmm. Just like, for example, when I was very young, I liked to compose, you know, mm -hmm. just because I like to do new things somehow, yeah. not just the traditional yeah. playing, which yeah, I also yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think this kind of creating new things is probably mm -hmm. my biggest strength. Also, in, you know, in our festival, this is what we do, yeah. actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> create programs. Um, yeah, I think this is what I would say. Is my and what strength. would you say you were, you know, you're challenged by? My biggest weakness. Hmm. I mean, honestly, I think my biggest weakness would be contacting people that I don't know. Cold, cold calls. Cold, cold emails. I mean, cold calls. maybe mm -hmm. even they're not completely cold. Maybe you know mm -hmm. there is one mini uh, mm -hmm. link already. But um, I've tried that a couple of times. Now, not anymore because now you know everything my agent does. But I tried it you know, some years ago, and I don't feel good at it. I, I, mm -hmm. I think that some things work out, yes, but I don't feel comfortable. I feel, yeah, I feel a bit strange. I'm great when I know the person, when he's heard me already. If, you know, I'm asking for a re-invite, yes, because mm -hmm. then I can be like, yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's yeah. my new program. Yeah. But this cold thing is hard for me. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah. What about you? Um, I would say my biggest strength is the fact, I would say that I'm, I'm very memorable that, mm -hmm. you know, like I think I'm very good in face to face interactions and no, I, I don't want to just say very good, but I think I'm very present in face to face yeah. interactions. And I think it's important to be memorable, you know, to not yeah, be lost sure. in, yeah. in the crowd. And I would say I'm very good at creating personal connections very quickly yeah and that goes also with the audience not just with like you know mm. but, but also like I and because I really enjoyed I mean I'm such a social person generally so I really and I, and, and I also have to say I'm I'm always I, I'm very skeptical of professional distance I mean you know that yes. about me yeah like I, I don't enjoy it a lot I'm not professionalism that's a whole different no no I this know, yeah. I love yeah. <laughs> and professional distance like you know for example in German you know it's like using in z instead of do things like that like um and, and also like general this whole like you know not crossing certain boundaries because it's inappropriate uh, and I, I I'm someone I'm like you know there is no reason for these boundaries not to be crossed if the situation calls for it you know mm -hmm. um to so so I think because I, I like it so much, I, I very quickly kind of make people feel very comfortable around me because I try to, you know, make it yeah. to be like an opening and uh, an inviting um, space. And that, that I think is like kind of my natural strength. And I think um, my weakness is very much the non-face-to-face, -face. Uh, <laughs> I would say, um, d discipline areas, like, you know, to then if I promise to send an email with like, I don't know, the program to then actually do it, you know, mm. like to kind of follow up in the less face-to-face, -face, social, spontaneous dimension, like that, not just, is it my weakness, I also just really don't necessarily enjoy it, you mm -hmm. know? I wish, if, if it would be possible to do all of it in person, I would love that, you know? Obviously it's not possible and, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining about that, but that I would say is the thing that I feel 
that I'm the, the, like not as good as yeah. in, you know, like this kind of, you know, having to sit down and write the dry email with the program after, you know, you've had that. Cause in, I feel like in a conversation, things are much quicker paced and, you know, you need to be much more present in the moment. And an email is again, like, you know, you're again confined to this, like dear sir, madam, yeah. blah, 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 you know, with warm regards, everything, you know, and, and, you know, so that's basically the thing I think I, I can always, I, there is still like a lot of space to improve. <laughs> So yeah, which is interesting because that's exactly the thing that you're super good in, yeah. you know, this kind of sitting down conscientious stuff. Yeah. Then I would, um, like to like talk about starting our festival together, which I think for both of us was, we didn't approach it at all as a career move. Absolutely no, not. We no, didn't yeah. do it that way, but I think that it ended up being a, like it added an unforeseeably huge dimension to our career, I yeah. would say. So, um, yeah. What, what did it do for you? Well, I mean, I think apart that, from the joy of you know, yeah, yeah oh, obviously, of course, we did it just because we wanted to bring yeah. music to the island and to have a beautiful week in Malibu yeah. with our friends. Um, starting, I think that in the very first year, which was seven years ago, mm-hmm. I feel like um, it was still maybe not one hundred percent equal parts between us. Mm-hmm. I feel like in that very first year, you know, it was more like. I was kind of inviting the people that I thought mm-hmm. of and you were like kind of going with it. But I feel like in the second year that fundamentally changed. And there was another dimension in the first year that influenced that. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about it. Well, I mean, there was a, how should we put that? There was a another person involved that is not in my or our life anymore who was very involved in the organization in the first year and therefore you kind of you know he was very much your he was very much but also I mean I don't think that this is the reason why you were not so involved maybe it was the reason why I was more involved right I don't know I mean it was I would say that okay first of all I mean that is a different point but when we started the festival we were very unaware of what would go into it in the end it's not like we had a a, a plan from the beginning like okay these are our tasks and now we're going to work through them and in the end there's going to be a beautiful festival I mean we it was such a learning by doing approach to the whole thing and I just think that in this first year and I mean I was I mean I was 19 right when when the first like yeah, I was during the organization yeah. of the first yeah. festival I was 19 yeah. right so I, I definitely had no idea you know so that's why I mean I do believe that because you were and he was also significantly older than you yeah. which also means that you know he had much more of an much idea more experience, yeah. and therefore he obviously went to you and then yeah. you did it kind of yeah. with him and I was kind of yeah. you know no but uh, not yeah it. no that's no for why, sure but you know? I feel like from the second year on as you said we kind of also learned from our exactly. mistakes of the first year and I think that we learned so much about yeah. p- just people you mm. know man like I, I want to say managing a team I don't feel like we're managing a team you know like we're the leaders of a team or anything like that but I feel like you know we do have to deal with many um, different many different characters and personalities mm-hmm. from different cultures also um and I think that Sometimes there are very difficult situations that we need to solve. And we did some team workshops also with someone that was leading them, not us, but we were part of them. And 
this helped us so much. I yeah. find not just, you know, what it takes to plan a great program, which by the way, also we learned yes. throughout the yeah. years, yeah. but also just what does it take to, you know, be able to talk with a production person, with a stage manager, with mm -hmm. all of these things mm -hmm. and with different types of musicians, different types of musicians. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. um, I think that it, it was very valuable for us. Also, yeah. of course, we grew our network of musicians of a lot of because, yeah. you know, we played yeah. with many different people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I mean, I remember like the, the first times that like, uh, I would say chaos inducing email came, like I was just totally uh, out of my comfort zone. Mm. Push. I was like, oh my God, what am I, what am I going to do now? Like, you know, someone complaining about something yeah. or someone uh, kind of last minute changing a huge chunk of the program or something like that. Something suddenly not working. Someone just, you know, needing to vent about certain things. And, you know, in the beginning, I would take it so personally. Like, oh my God, did I do something wrong? Mm. You know, at this point, I just understand that it's part of the process. You know, it's, it's part of it. Yeah. quite regular that people are sometimes, you know, I don't know, offended about something. Other people, you know, and, and if you You are kind of, you know, at, at the center of such a big endeavor, not just us. I mean, there are obviously other people involved in it as well, but sometimes we get those emails and it's just like, okay, you know, now we're going to approach it. Just be patient. Don't take it personally. Find a solution. Yeah. Be, you know, understanding. And once again, I have to say it helps tremendously that we are two, of course, that we're yeah. together because sometimes yeah. we get emails that are, you know, really difficult <laughs> and I think if it was just me or just you we would feel yeah. a bit more lost yes. but like this it's just okay I'm gonna give you a call or now you know I'm just gonna come down here and Absolutely. talk to you and be like okay let's just tackle this let's just write this reply and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely um, yeah absolutely yeah I mean I, I find that the festival was one is I mean one of the biggest educators for, for yes. us in, in all yeah. the ways in all the ways um, and it's so interesting because it really wasn't a strategic move on no. our parts which is probably exact I mean again this is like, how the you best know, things happen this is how the best yeah. things happen out it of was, love exactly out it was dedication. just out of like yeah. a passion for the yeah. place and for the idea yeah. so it really didn't matter to us you know oh are we gonna you know manage to get into this uh, newspaper or not yeah. it's no. all about yeah. creating that vision that we had and it that's really why it wasn't about the success for us at, at all. all it was only about the joy the joy of bringing yeah to this place and then slowly the success let's say kind of crept in and yeah. now of course we have you know a certain ideal that we always want to yeah. reach yeah, every yeah, yeah, year yeah. of course but and yeah. um no i mean it's it's i'm so grateful to that me too i, me too. I know even sometimes you know during the year when things are spe like specifically stressful or like you know we're getting a particularly challenging email <laughs> or response from someone we were like ah oh, you know are we sure we want to get ourselves into that mm -hmm. again next year and we're like ah oh, you know but of course i mean there's yeah. no question it's so you know like It's it's such a gratifying experience at the end. I mean, it's so yeah. worth it. Absolutely. So, and I would really recommend it to all artists and musicians are out there that you know it's worth it starting your own endeavor, whatever that might be. Whether yeah, it's a it small need concert to be a series, you know, whether it is like you know, it it it's also it enhances your life a lot because within that adversity and the challenges, you really kind of creates also a bit of a resilience for yourself. And I would say, like you know, it has made me such a more you know, comfortable person within the music business mm. space for me. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely worth it. Okay, so uh, before getting to like a, a little end segment, mm -hmm. I uh, wanted to ask you, you know, like we kind of in the first episode spoke a lot about the whole childhood thing. And to get back to that, do you think that now um, we're obviously both 
trying to be adults. <laughs> <laughs> was it worth it? What would what would you have done differently? Like, you know, do you think it was worth all the, I would the say, unconventional and mm-hmm. or partly also sacrifices that we went through um, to do it? Or, or like, is there specific things you would have imagined that could have been done differently, less intense, more intense? Well, for sure, I would say yes, it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I don't think I would have wanted it any different way. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I immediately think when you ask me, could anything have, you know, if anything would be different, what would it be? I think that, um, you know, I, I would say one day more or less practice would make a difference. You know, exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Yeah. Because I remember, you know, we slash our mother was very religious about this mm-hmm. practice every day, even on holiday, everything. A piano free day was a very rare uh, occurrence. Especially in our after life. the, I would say, very successful first piano free day we did after like <laughs> seven years where we went on a bike ride and I'd kind of forgotten how to ride a bike, I would say. <laughs> and I like fell down spectacularly and like opened up my knee ended up in the hospital fashion. with stitches and that was taken as a bad omen for <laughs> practice free days in the future <laughs> I mean in hindsight I would say you know one or two more practice free days would not have been a problem mm-hmm. but at the same time I do also want to say that I think the fact that it was such a given mm-hmm. that you will practice every day and piano free days are not just la 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 mm-hmm. everywhere right left and center I think was also important, yeah. you know, because I mean, the mentality, became, the mentality yeah. became the lifestyle. So generally, if I would say, would you change anything? No, I would keep it just the way it was. And mm-hmm. it was absolutely worth it. Yeah, no, I agree with it 100%. Of course it was worth it. Sometimes, you know, when I uh, am with some friends and like the friends are playing uh, like beach volleyball and right. I'm literally like unable to even get into the vicinity of the ball without doing the <laughs> weird embarrassing move and, and I'm like, sorry, you know, I, I never used to play these type of games as a child. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. I sometimes think to myself like, wow, you know, I did have such a different childhood than, mm-hmm. than most with such different focus. And like, I do think that we have like some huge blind spots you know in terms mm-hmm. of also like tv shows that we didn't watch right, growing right. up and things like that and um, but I, I don't view that like as as something that i wish i had you know instead yeah. of instead i mean of how this. much do we have instead? exactly exactly yeah, yeah. so but I, that's the, the one thing that you know what you said like i feel like what maybe would have even enhanced our life would be if like for example a, once a year we would have like one one week you know, instrument free. And I've noticed that as we, you know, as we've mentioned now many times already on this podcast is we did not come from a musical family. And I imagine that maybe, you know, someone who is not a musician, but like our mother who, but tries to do everything possible to make sure that we can become successful musicians, maybe doesn't have an awareness of what is truly tragic and what is not tragic, you know? And, um, many times like the, the, kids of extremely successful musicians that themselves you know are taking music very seriously because like the successful musicians do have a feeling for what is truly tragic and not they have like these rituals of okay and every summer for two weeks we put the instrument away right and we go on holiday because that is actually very valuable it is valuable putting yeah. the instrument away actually, for a yeah, week or maybe two instead is of super saying valuable. one random practice free day maybe as you said like one practice free week a year could have been a, a good approach. Exactly. Which yeah. is, but I mean, you know, no but, one could have known. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like that messed us up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. But I mean, apart from that, we were extremely lucky. I mean, yeah. we, we have to say, no matter how hard it was, and we can definitely get into all the hardships and everything, we were very lucky that both of our parents did everything they could to make a, the, the potential of a career in this yeah. field a priority. Yeah. 
in very different ways. I mean... Uh, Some of them challenging ways, but that is a whole other episode. <laughs> but definitely, I mean, it, it gave us the life no, that I we can now have. But I also meant in both, like, the dedication of, you know, for example, our mother traveling with us to a different city every weekend. Absolutely. Practicing with us, Absolutely. bringing us to master classes, and also the financial support, you know. Oh, yeah. Even providing the, the financial framework to be able you. to go to master classes for six weeks in the mm -hmm. summer and all of that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's why I also have to say I understand in a way why, you know, like these very, like, high uh, effort artistic uh, endeavors very often come from households that are well off because it mm. is a very expensive hobby. You yeah. know? Like the good teachers, yeah. the traveling involved, the investment in the career, you know, like also other whether it is concert dresses, PR agencies, you know, instruments yeah. and everything. And it's I mean, and I think that is a shame. I mean, I really wish that in the future we can, you know, work on providing framework for people just based on talent yeah. rather than talent plus yeah. financial means. Yeah. And obviously there are, there are, you know, programs in that direction already, but because you know, talent does not come hand in hand with financial means not at, at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right so as like a last segment i wanted to like a segment of firsts of okay. like whether you remember like first stuff so i would start off with first concert do you remember your first concert my first concert yeah i remember it was in the music school mm -hmm. i think it was like the christmas concert or i don't mm -hmm. know autumn concert or something like this and i played this piece called trom trom Marta Hans. really that's what you played <laughs> that's what i played I which is a piece that consists of only the note c it's literally like the second piece you learn. So it's, For me, it was the first. That was no, so much I had I had one before, which was but, also only C's, but also in the same rhythm. Oh, okay. Because Tom Tom Martins already has different rhythms. No, I know, I remember. So please, I don't. Can, I can don't, 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 don't. <laughs> you see, I was um, just already so talented. I can that tell. I already pulled off the skipped. C plus rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was my first concert. Very successful. So my first concert was actually with you. It was... Um, Actually, a significantly harder piece, but <laughs> it was um, oh my oh my oh McDonald's had a farm, and you like kind of accompanied me. It was a forehand thing, and I think mine was. I'm not sure if I remember One of those it. younger sibling perks that we once again have encountered right here. Well, or you know, your perk is that you played twice in that concert because once for yourself oh. and once supporting your younger sibling. Okay. No, and, and and I seem to remember it was not in the music school, but it was like in a museum. It was like a, a, like a branched out oh, concert yeah. of the music okay. school. I kind of still have like the, I have a very clear picture of that room and how it looked. Okay. I think, I mean, I'm not sure, but I think it was four, five, four, I don't know. I, I don't remember. Yeah, okay. So first orchestra concert. Ooh, first orchestra concert. Well, I remember that. It was uh, Beethoven, first piano concerto, first movement with the or student orchestra mm. of our university. It was during this summer master class mm -hmm. kind of of our youth student group and everyone got to play one movement only mm -hmm. of a concerto with orchestra and that was the movement that I played. I remember loving it. Oh, yeah. I remember this feeling of having the orchestra on the left and this sound body next to me just really like it was uh, it yeah. left a lasting impression yeah. mine was Haydn concerto third movement and I remember I had prepared 
so much for that for that I remember like the last six months had just been that mm-hmm. and I was also super young mm-hmm. I was eight years old so you know obviously like I needed time to just learn the piece and stabilize it I was super well prepared yeah. <laughs> and I remember also loving it you know yeah. I was, that was still at an age where I was zero aware of the pitfalls of everything I was just there enjoying myself and um, like this whole this whole year I remember like the, the, just the whole ritual involved I remember it was not just like the playing was exciting mm-hmm. but the fact you know you had to walk on stage shake the hand yeah. of the conductor shake the hand of no the not con- the conductor shake the hand of the concert master you walk on stage with the conductor you already got the ritual wrong <laughs> no wait, hang on a second yeah but at that point the conductor was already there because he was uh-huh, conducting okay. everything i'm talking about the okay. specific concert but did you shake the hand of the conductor yes. before you played i've never in my life done i shook that. the i shook the, con- okay. the hand of the conductor okay. then of the concert master then wow. i sat down and i remember i always messed up the order whether it was first concert master then conductor or the other way around and then you play it. and then afterwards you shake the hand of the conductor again you shake the hand of the concert master you take a bow and you go off stage and it was this whole like you know you know absolutely ritualized routine of that's what you do and even that was already exciting yeah. you know yeah. and and also like this whole thing of and then the orchestra stands up and you kind of have to turn around and I don't think that I, I don't think I even got to that phase when I was eight <laughs> but like you know you have to applaud the orchestra like all of these things I remember it was just fascinating to me I loved it I remember you told me before that concert I hope I don't forget to shake the hand of the conductor after I'm done like this was what you were most nervous about <laughs> yeah oh, and then I remember like uh, in, in this phase because then the next year I played Mozart A major con- uh, concerto again third mm-hmm. movement and um, it was I know it was when I played it with the quartet because anyway I just remember this one time that I had already decided what like comment I would make before I went on stage super professional Instead of, you know, like, instead of just listening to what went wrong, being like, ah, oh, maybe we can try this place before. Mm-hmm. I'd already made up my mind of what I was going to say Got before it. I went. And, and then I remember, like, you know, I took, I was like, actually, I was thinking maybe in this place, could we take a bit more time? And I remember there was this one cellist that took me so seriously and I felt so important. He was like, of course, of course. The, sol- uh, the, the, the soloist just said she needs more time in that bar. <laughs> and I was like... I did, <laughs> you know, and, and I felt so important. I remember these oh moments. Oh my God, that's so cute. Oh wow. No, I didn't dare say anything for a, quite a while there. <laughs> but I love the fact that, you know, I didn't react. So I think I just, I already had planned yeah. that I was going to say one thing. <laughs> And by the way, this little plan at some point backfired majorly when like ages later, I was already significantly older. I asked the conductor like whether I could, um, whether it was possible to play something a bit slower because I'm having like a technically very challenging place and like the oboe has the theme. And the conductor looked at me and looked at the oboist and was like, the oboe, she asked the oboist, is it okay for you to play it in that tempo? You know, like that quickly. And the oboist was like, yeah, it's okay for me. And then he said, we're keeping it in this tempo. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> thank you very much for nothing. <laughs> wow, that's a bit rude. Um, okay, so first chamber music experience. Also, when you because I know we both played some when we were very young, but then also when you were like older with like you know. A okay, very... so when I was young, first chamber music experience was with. Oh my god! I I'm outside of piano think. duo, right? Yeah, outside of piano duo, was it with cello? Or with a um, trombonist? Oh, I remember. Because I did some strange chamber music things. I did a duo with a trombonist. Then I did this whole long thing with a cellist. Mm-hmm. Then I did with a flutist. Yep. So I had quite some chamber music yeah. things when I was younger. Um, but then the first 
real chamber music thing when I was older, I would say, is with my still chamber music partner, mm-hmm. um, a cellist that I still play with mm-hmm. very, very regularly. And this was, yeah, kind of the beginning of our duo journey, which now is also 10 or mm-hmm. more years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. this... Well, I mean, before, of course... It's not quite true that this was my first experience. I mean, before, of course, I had played some trios and everything, but uh, this was somehow a very lasting yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, I remember the first one I did was, again, like, super early on, I think when I was, like, six, like, you know, when you did your first things. Yeah. Um, and I, did, I played, like, something with a cellist, I remember, mm-hmm. but, I mean, it was a tiny thing. I, rem- I barely remember it. And then for a very long time, I did nothing. Like, mm-hmm. when you were doing all these, like, you know, competitions with the musicians, I was just playing solo. Mm-hmm. And then I remember when I was about 15... I played for the first time again with uh, like chamber music at our teacher's festival, at Lasse's festival. Right. Yeah. And it was the first time that I'd played since I was six years old. And now I was 15, so very different stage, you know, mm. in my life. And I remember I loved it so mm. much. I played just this very small piece. I remember I played Elegie by Fauré. And, and it was like this, you know, really, really good cellist. And he was super nice. And, you know, we didn't rehearse it very much because it was a very short piece. And, you know, but I remember like just this whole listening to someone and reacting to what they're doing. I loved it so much. Yeah. Like, I just naturally felt drawn to this mm-hmm. type of music making. And, you know, since I've just fallen in love with it even more. Um, okay. First famous person you met in our field. Ooh. Um, I think probably it must have been Kisin. <laughs> oh, was it before? I mean, I met Yehudi Menuhin when I was eight. Is that right? I think eight. I mean, for him, it was a big thing because I played for him. So it was more than just like a meeting. But before that, I had been going to concerts of okay. famous people. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I met... Kisin before that and okay. was majorly in love with him also. Um, <laughs> Shout and, out to Kisin. <laughs> um, but and then yeah, Menuhin probably even more famous than Kisin, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Kisin is pretty famous. Kisin is pretty so famous. So is Yuri yeah. Menuhin. <laughs> but, but Menuhin is maybe cooler because he actually heard me play. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For me, I mean, I remember, of course, like seeing a lot of them on stage, although. I think I feel like I went to less concerts when I was younger than you because mm. you used to go to concerts with our father. No, I, no, not at all. I used yeah? to go to concerts with Marina. With, oh! With my piano teacher. Oh, okay. With my music school piano teacher. This was another one of those cool oh, okay, lifestyle okay, things. Okay, yeah, yeah. She would always book tickets. Um, I see. And then we would go to concerts and it was a whole ritual. Okay. She would dress super nicely. I would dress oh, okay, nicely okay, and we would yeah, like, yeah. talk in the break. But in any case, that. for some reason, I missed that phase. Sorry, so I didn't yeah. do that yet. Not, not going to talk about it. No, no, no. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, no, totally. But I remember the first person I was truly starstruck by was a lot older um, is because Lass, our, our teacher, has a very good uh, connection. Well, he, you know, he's played a lot with Simon Rattle. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was 17 or 18, in one of my first lessons with Lass, and he, he was living in Berlin, and he did it at the Philharmonie in Berlin, in the conductor room, kind of. And I remember I was playing Chopin Preludes with him, and it was towards the end of the lesson, and I was, like, playing through for Lass, like, the last few preludes. And suddenly someone knocked on the door, and the door opened, and Simon Rattle walked in. And I remember, I think I forgot how to play the piano. You know, like, I was like, oh my God, yeah. 
oh my God. Like I was just, I couldn't believe it. And I mean, Simon Rattle was one of these people that I had idolized for years. I mean, to this day, he's mm. like one of my favorite musicians ever. And um, so th- I remember being truly starstruck. By yeah, him. I can totally imagine. This also happened to me once in with, a with lesson <laughs> at the Philharmonie. <laughs> but actually, maybe one more little story that is kind of similar to that is when I was playing in Switzerland, in Lucerne, in the KKL, I was rehearsing on stage for a lunch concert that mm-hmm. I was going to play. And literally, I thought I was alone in the hall. I was like exercising, whatever, doing my things. And then someone just like went like this on my shoulder, like tap on my shoulder. And I turned around and it was Sokolov standing behind me, <laughs> literally. And the only time I had seen Sokolov in my life was when I went to a recital once back in the sort of when yeah. I was very young. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't even know what to say. And then he's like, excuse me, um, can I try the piano? And I was just like, yes. And I like stood up, you know. And he sat down and then this lady that we both know that is also very often in Heimbach, but that actually works in yeah, 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 Lucerne, yeah. she was like, sorry to interrupt. He's here to choose the piano for his recital tomorrow evening. Yeah. Because it was the piano fest in, yeah, in yeah, Lucerne. Yeah, yeah, and I was yeah, like, yeah. oh my God, wow. Yeah, and yeah, then he yeah, played yeah. this piano, which by the way, I thought was an amazing piano. He played and he was like, mm, not that one, not that one. <laughs> Which it was a new Steinway D, of course. He was like, not that one, not that one. And then they were like, okay, let's find another one. Like <laughs> rushing him to the next piano. And I was like, all right. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. I also remember, the, the other two stories I remember is the first time I, I saw Mata Agrich. Which, but, but with her, it was like it was like literally a celebrity situation because it was again at the Philharmonie in Berlin, and I knew she was playing a concert, but obviously I didn't like you know I didn't go to her yeah. backstage room or anything like that, and because it wasn't like she was just preparing for a concert, mm-hmm. and then I saw her like walk by the cafeteria, surrounded by uh, like a throng of people around her, and I was also like. <gasps> That's Mata Agri, yeah. you know, like totally. You know, I feel like we could do almost an entire episode on like encounters with famous people. Mm. You know, like famous people from the industry, but also other people. Yeah. I mean, we've met like really famous people, yeah. like I don't know, the Dalai Lama yeah, yeah, or yeah. like politicians. I feel like yeah. this could be a fun yeah, episode yeah, yeah. to do. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And then the other thing I remember is like the first time we were at the festival from last. Again, that same festival when I was 15 just the amount of like music personalities that were mm-hmm. there and they were kind of like arriving one after the other and it was just like oh, yeah this is a whole other level of music making that I've never been a part <laughs> of before so that was super interesting okay um first do you remember your first like exam you know like like whether it was an entry exam or something well this first of all I remember the Marina one exactly exactly exams yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at my music school with Marina which were those, the scale exams yeah, those I remember as well vividly and this was definitely my first hated exam hated them oh I loved them <laughs> <laughs> I loved those because I feel like I was good at scales Gosh. And I feel like I was always very prepared and I went in there and she was like, okay, yes, then I, and you had to somehow prepare three keys and she was like, play this key. And I was like, playing it very happily. Yeah. I was feeling very secure because it was kind of easy. You only had to play the scale. You yeah, but really I, the reason to. why I felt uncomfortable was because I felt like the whole vibe was meant to like artificially make you nervous because mm-hmm. you would go in and be like, so Kiveli, are you prepared? Uh, really? And I was oh, like, I, don't I think that. so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, okay, so which scales did you prepare? And then it's like, you know, this one, this yeah. one, and this one. Oh, this one's difficult. Why don't you start with that one? <laughs> and you know, like the whole thing, I was like, okay, you know, so I remember yeah. I really didn't like those those exams. And the other ones that I remember I didn't necessarily like very much was the, um, like the, 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 the theory exams. 
Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, I was always, I, I always ended up doing very well, especially, like, you know, in uh, Gehörbildung. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> in, like, so no, no, basically, like, you know, Gehörbildung is the thing that um, a person plays a tune on the piano and you can't, and you have to write it down just by yeah, listening it. But that's called solfege, no? No, I thought solfege is when you look at notes and you immediately have to sing them. I might be wrong. I don't know. Okay. In any case, like that's what it is. And I was always so scared that I wouldn't be able to hear the melody. And it, you know, you hear it the first time, you're like, oh my god, I, I don't know it yet. And then, like, yeah, and the yeah. second time, you know, you start piecing it together. Yeah. That's a whole. Oh, but I haven't done that in ages. Yeah, same. <gasps> we should do an episode where, like, we kind of go back to like these old things we needed to do for each other. Oh yeah, and like actually do them. And actually do them. That would be funny. <laughs> okay. Um. Then. The first, like, do you remember these two questions go to the first, like, big piece or the first, like, hard composer? Like, what was the, you know, because, you know, in the beginning you kind of play, Mm. like, these pieces, you know, from the beginner books. And, you know, maybe there is a Mozart or a Haydn minuet in it. But, you know, basically you're not playing pieces, you're playing fragments of pieces, you know. And then at some point it's like, okay, now you're going to learn your first actual piece. Yeah, I do remember. The first piece that was kind of like that for me was Schubert um, Impromptu, mm-hmm. the A-flat major mm-hmm. one. And um, I remember also like hearing Marina tell me, you know, yeah, you have to understand the piece. You have to understand it musically. It's mm-hmm. not just playing mm-hmm. and there's so much more to it. And I think this was the first piece mm-hmm. like that for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the first, I remember... Picking like my first Mozart sonatina mm-hmm. that I was I wanted I was obsessed with Mozart when I was like a kid. I, all, all I wanted to play was Mozart. Yeah, um, so I remember that kind of uh, thing that I I really loved um, the sonatina, and then like later the um, sonata facile by yeah. Mozart was like my other next big thing. Um, yeah. So that was probably my first piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last question I wanted to ask you is: Do you remember your first? amazing moment on stage yes uh, absolutely me yes too, but tell me your story first. um for me it was in a piano competition in the netherlands in enchede oh okay um where i was i think nine and it was a big piano competition mm-hmm. actually and i'm i was taking part as like the significantly youngest person and Fun fact, for that, the, I got like kind of like a Grand Prix, which was mm-hmm. like a prize that was invented even for me, like kind of like the cool prize. Anyway, um, there I remember playing my own composition as the contemporary piece. Uh-huh. And this is something that I used to do during that time, also in other competitions. I also did it in Prague, mm-hmm. at the Jenny competition. And I remember feeling so comfortable on stage playing that because in my mind I thought you know nobody really knows this piece I can play it as free as I want to yeah and I remember having this freedom yeah, yeah gave yeah, yeah. me such confidence yeah. and somehow made me really create something beautiful and at the end I also got the prize for the contemporary piece because yeah. I, I would say because of that because yeah, 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 there yeah. was this you know moment of freedom yeah there yeah and I'm so sad because I've lost this composition and mm. I asked you about it actually. Right? I know. Yeah. I don't know. Somehow I lost the score, and there is actually a recording, but I don't know where it is. I, I I don't know. I hope that one day I can maybe find it. I'm sure. I'm anyway. Otherwise, you have to reconstruct it like hypnotherapy. Yeah, I've already tried to, but I can't remember every bit. Yeah, 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 I yeah, just yeah. remember some bits. It was called the Treehouse, right? The Treehouse, exactly. It, yeah. And it was inspired by Disneyland. 
Oh, it's so cool. Because we went to Disneyland Paris together. Yeah. And we were in Robinson Crusoe's. No, yeah. No, Robin Hood. Wait, who had the tree? Robin Hood or Robin Robinson Crusoe? What? In Disneyland, there is a treehouse of I don't a Robin something. I don't remember. Is it Rob- Did Robin Hood have a treehouse? I don't know. Anyway, who had a treehouse in Disneyland? It is in Disneyland Paris. A treehouse. A treehouse. And this is why I called it the treehouse, because it was okay. inspired by that okay. going there. And I composed going the steps, then all the rooms that we saw. It was the last saw. holiday we did with both of our parents. Exactly. And every <laughs> room was a movement of the piece. Okay, I so never knew that the... it was inspired by Disneyland. I only no, knew no, it was, it was inspired by that, because I was there and I thought, wow, I should compose something about that. That's so cool. So I composed, like, the bedroom, the living room. That is so cool. The music room. I remember that. the kitchen. The, the kitchen, kitchen was... Like very active. Like things are happening. Yeah, 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 I remember the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. My first amazing concert, I was much older, like the first time I consciously amazing, I consciously remember having like this moment of, wow, this is special. And it was right around like my stage fright time. And it was kind of like an oasis of hope in this whole phase because um, I, it was my one of my first like when I was piano recitals when I was older. I think I was like 15 or something like that. And it, I remember I went to that concert with the, I would say, pretty firm expectation that it was going to go bad okay in a way mm-hmm. like I was not going to pull it off it was too much for me to handle and I also remember the program I played like some Scarlatti sonatas in the beginning then a Beethoven sonata and then the second half was like some you know more like showy pieces yeah and um I remember the whole hall was exclusively lit by candles it was completely candle lit and it was like not a very big hall it was I would say it was like a maximum of 150 people maybe mm-hmm. 200 mm-hmm. and um it was like a very special atmosphere and but never that like even though that happened like kind of it all went went over my head I was just so nervous oh my god you know how am I going to make this and remember I went out I played the two Scarlatti sonatas they I felt very uncomfortable it didn't feel good at all and then I went and I started that Beethoven sonata and I remember that like in the through like in mid midway through the um exposition there was like this weird perspective shift I remember looking at my fingers and thinking these are my fingers like I'm in control Uh of these fingers Uh like kind of you know if I move them faster it's going to sound faster if I move them slower they're going to go slower you know and I remember and I remember to prove it to myself I suddenly like did this huge accelerando that was like in in like one bar Mm where it wasn't that huge it seemed huge to me like I suddenly like kind of did something I never would have done normally you know and I remember and it it worked and it kind of sounded like spontaneous and and, and, you know sharp and that kind of like with like take t- taking the motivation of the success of this one bar just catapulted me into this feeling of I'm in control, you know, like I'm the person creating this right now. Mm. And I remember I, I like I really got this feeling of wings out of tension. And, and after the sonata, I couldn't wait. Like it was the, the intermission was then I couldn't wait to go back out on stage and like get spontaneous again. And I remember that the feeling of that concert, knowing that that was possible. It was carried me through yeah. the following years. That's incredible. And you know, it was incredible. What you described concert. is exactly what Lars told me he does whenever he gets nervous. That he consciously does a big rubato, like he said, usually going slower though, doing a big ritardano just to prove to himself, look, I'm in control of everything. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. So, um, yeah, that brings us to the end of this episode. I have one actually quite funny story about okay. you, because we're talking also more about the business side of things and 
and so and I probably don't think you remember it anymore. It was just very funny because it signifies like a potential mis misstep on my part and you like <laughs> saving me in a very elegant way. Basically, we'd gone to a concert of one like very accomplished musician and that musician had kind of obviously had an off day. Mm -hmm. I remember he played something and it really like, you know, like it, it, it's kind of like this off day where the nerves took over and kind of lost control on stage and as a musician you know you it's a noticeable you feel that when someone on stage is kind of you know holding on to control yeah. rather than letting go right and I remember with and, and, and we'd gone backstage to see the musicians we knew that person and <laughs> basically like there, there were some some strawberries in the back and I was like eating the strawberries and I had wanted and I meant it in like the most positive and complimentary way I'd wanted to like thank the musician in a way for the fact that you know it was so refreshing to see someone as accomplished and as successful and as amazing of a musician as you to watch you kind of struggle struggle <laughs> and kind of watch you play a concert that obviously didn't go very well and you not being here backstage and crying and losing it you know that's what I wanted to say and I started saying like wow that was so refreshing and you kind of gave me like a death stare and you were like the strawberry was the strawberry super refreshing <laughs> and I was like <laughs> yeah, the strawberry was so refreshing. <laughs> and you kind of saved me from like potentially, you know, saying something really inappropriate to this musician and making him feel bad. Oh <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, the strawberry. And I like kind of I actually do remember, do remember that. It? I do remember that. Well, you know, the thing is, I think that, I mean, probably you would agree that when you come off stage, the yeah. worst Thing yeah. that someone can say to you is something negative no, about I your know, performance. No, I know, I know, I know. I mean, it wouldn't right? have been a good move. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely I mean, saved me there. Because I know that you meant it in the yeah. best way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you didn't even mean, oh, it was bad. You yeah, know, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think also for anyone out there listening to this, if you, if you notice a mistake and you're so proud that you notice it... Don't say it. Don't say it to the musician yeah. the second after he walked on stage and just showed you the innermost part of his soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like the, the, the <laughs> classical people that go back and mean it... mean it. Well, I mean, I know that would have been yeah. a very bad yeah. thing. I'm very <laughs> thankful to you for saving me there. But like, you know, if come back like yeah you know actually I know that this part it says pianissimo and I think you played mezzo piano and you're trying to kind of share it's really kind of not the right moment yeah to, to, there's to say a better moment for it there's yeah. a better way but not like when you're still sweaty from their performance going like yeah this could have been better it's like oh, okay you know Thank what you. am I gonna do with this comment now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all right yeah. Anyway, my story is um, one that to me kind of is the turning point of our duo okay. career. Um, and it is the moment where we played Stravinsky, Sacre mm -hmm. du Printemps, in Heimbach at mm -hmm. our teacher's festival. Mm -hmm. I feel like it is somehow such a, I don't know, such a key moment yeah. for yeah. me and also for us. Also a key piece for us. Also definitely. definitely key piece. This, I would say, has become our core or yeah. one of our core yeah. repertoire pieces yeah. as a duo mm -hmm. and also just leading up to this I mm -hmm. remember him calling us and saying can you imagine playing this and to us it was like 
an, a mountain that yeah. could not even yeah, be yeah, yeah. tackled remotely. It seemed incredible. Yeah. And then we said, okay, we're going to do it. And he was also just kind of like, no, I think you can do it. You should yeah. do it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. then yeah. we started practicing it and we practiced it really intensely yeah. separately together. Yeah. Then we went to a masterclass with someone else yeah. to work on it. And I feel like this is the first piece as a duo that we really... Mm -hmm transcended together yeah somehow mm -hmm. we really understood it we made it our own in a way yeah and I remember before that concert I wasn't even nervous I was I was so looking forward yeah. to it yeah. I was looking yeah, forward yeah, to yeah. performing it and there were you know typical Heimbach situation all these superstars yeah listening yeah, yeah, to yeah. us but this was the first time that I was thinking yes they should listen to us you yes. know I think we have something to say yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and it was it was such an incredible yes. concert. I remember playing and the audience loved it. Yes, and I remember. It was, it was just such, a, such an incredible And it was experience. also so incredible because like, I, I felt like I just wasn't nervous. Exactly. It was like just this excitement. And it, yeah. it's an incredibly hard piece. It's yeah. not like it's yeah, an yeah, easy yeah, piece. Yeah. But it was just, yeah, it was so nice. It was even with radio broadcast, which usually is very yes. uh, nerve-wracking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was so nice and... I think from then on, I feel like we really became so much closer musically yes, as yeah, a duo. Yeah. This piece really brought us close together. And we together. just love playing it to this day. I mean, yeah. it's just an incredible piece, yeah. really. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. So, so this concludes uh, today's episode. Exactly. And in the next episode, we're talking about something completely different, something non-musical once again. But we're talking about what it is like to grow up as a... Not purely German or purely Greek, but kind of a mixed, uh, not mixed race, but um, <laughs> how do you no, say that? No, a mix of two cultures. Mix of two cultures. Yeah, yeah, also very different cultures. Yeah, what our identities are, what we identify with more, and um, also some funny stories connected to that. Exactly. So we'll see you next week on Saturday. Sending lots of love to all of you. Bye. Bye. You're listening to The Sister Trill with Danai and Kiveli.